Man, we are in a series. In fact, we are closing the series today, and uh, it's been quite a journey as we've walked through 2 Corinthians chapters 4, 5, 6, and we'll close out chapter 7 today. And uh, this series has been called Fearless, and uh, what it means to take a position with your God and stand undaunted, to be able to be assured of who he is and not move off of that. To take a position where you worship your God, and no matter what comes at you, you will remain fearless. And uh, that's what we've been walking through, and I'm just telling you, that doesn't happen on accident. Right? That doesn't happen by just going, all right, that's what I want to do today. And so we just kind of stand up and say it's our goal, and we try to voice it out, and we just go after it. It, it doesn't work that way. And so as Paul walked it through, he was walking through, man, make sure you have these perspectives. Make sure you have this understanding. Make sure you grasp how God is at work in this world. Make sure you understand that there will be trials and struggles that come. Make sure you understand so much of us taking the right stance and holding it is us actually understanding what God is doing in our lives and why he's doing it. And uh, so having the right perspective along the way, and we've looked at 10 different weeks of perspective shift and us committing our life to God, and today we're closing out. Uh, live in humility. And this is like the exclamation point to all of it. Like, we got to make sure we grasp first and foremost that life is not about me, right? Everybody say, it's not about you. And now say, and it's also not about me, <laughs> Right? We get so used to that, we're like, the world is not about you, man. It might be about me, though, right? That's kind of how we live life. We sort of walk around with this sort of, oh, it should matter to you more that whatever just happened, and, and the world starts to revolve around us in the way we think, and man, I'm just telling you, it is so not about this world. It is so about our Savior, and we are called to live in humility. It is all about Him, and all of God's people said, that's what we're talking about, all right? Live in humility. So let's dive in today to the last, passage, last part of chapter 7 and uh, learn how to do that, all right? So the first point, uh, it starts out, always pursue godly grief, not worldly grief. Always pursue godly grief, not worldly grief, all right? And, uh, he starts here in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And uh, let's just hold right there. And uh, worldly grief and godly grief, these things were introduced just a little bit at the end of last week, the very last half of the last verse last week. And um, it says, For a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief. Just so you know, in the original language, it's actually saying grief, grief that is according to God. That's what it's saying in the original. Grief that is according to God. So you're having a sorrow, you're having a deep pain within your soul as you see it the way God sees it. Grief according to God. That's what godly sorrow or godly grief is when we grasp it the way God grasps it, okay? Grief according to God. It says, for godly grief produces repentance. See, when we understand that sin is wrong, we understand that our actions or our thoughts or our behaviors or our desires need to go, man, that is so wrong before God. When we grasp that, well, then the next step is to turn from that 
and saying, okay, God, now it's about you. I repent. I'm turning from that sin, and I'm heading the direction you want, repentance. It's being done with the sin you're in and being on with holiness, following after your God. It's seeing it the way God sees it and therefore behaving the way God would call you to behave. And please hear me. It isn't just about the actions. It's out of the abundance of the heart that our mouth speaks, that our hands act, that we do, right? And so we long for our heart to be in alignment with God. It'll show up in the physical world, in the way we handle our daily life. He says, for godly grief, that is grief according to God, produces, brings forth, generates, creates a turning away from sin, repentance. If we truly have a godly sorrow over what's going on, we'll be done with that sin. Okay? And the for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, that leads to salvation. And we need to understand in the scriptures, when you see the word salvation, there's really several facets to salvation that goes on. One is like right in the moment. Like in the moment that I believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and I confess him as Lord, Romans 10, 9, and 10, in that moment, I am saved. There's a moment where the Holy Spirit now takes up residence within God working with us. And uh, let's be honest, man. If we were designing our own religion, we might be like, that's not the way I'd go with things, right? And you might make, well, let's make it more clear. Let's make it more simple. Let's do something else. And there is something about God with us us that is absolutely essential and he's like you've got to grasp this man in the moment you believe in there's faith I will cover over I will come in I will be with you praise be to God and that's salvation in the moment and then we begin to experience that salvation lived out we call it sanctification as we're changed day by day right and God literally doing a work in us Holy Spirit changing us as we learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 1 degree of glory at a time, right? And so for all of us who are like, man, I cannot shake the whole of this sin all at once, right? One degree of glory at a time. Like God knows exactly what he's doing and he's teaching us how to let go and he's shaping our hearts along the way. And there's part of that salvation experience that's ongoing. And then there's the salvation to come that moment where we're standing before the judgment seat, that moment where we would need to give account on our own for being absolutely perfect or not, right? And in that moment where we would have to stand up and stand for ourselves and we have nothing to say other than, I was wrong in that moment. If you have in the past, in this world, believed in Jesus Christ, confessed him as your Lord, and in that moment was saved, name written in the Lamb's book of life, then in that future moment, you are literally told, you are forgiven, you are released, you are saved. And man, in that moment, amen, in that moment where judgment would come, not anymore. Right? Salvation, salvation that is today, salvation that is ongoing in our life here on earth, and salvation that comes eternally. Please note, they are all so secure in Jesus Christ. We have hope. And he's like, get this man, when we have an understanding of the world according to God, when we have a grief according to God, 
Well, it leads us to a repentance where we set down self and we pick up our worship of our king and it will lead to salvation in the end. This moment where we're standing before our king and we have no excuse, but we are saved nonetheless. Praise God. And it's because of our faith and our hope in him. It says leads to salvation without regret. Trust me, man, on that day, you will not be like, oh, I don't know if I should, uh, right? In that moment, you're like, oh, man, this is unbelievable, right? Can you imagine what that celebration moment is like when the perfection is on, the sin is done, there is absolute worship. Man, we get some worship going on in this place, and some of it in music, and some of it in the giving, and some of it during the preach, and man, there's some celebrate going on, and this is all while we got sin rolling in our life. Can you imagine when that sin is gone, done, over, and there is absolute perfection in the heavens, celebrating God Almighty for all of eternity. Man, that's where we're headed. No regret. Everybody just say it with me. No regret. Man, cannot wait to be selling, God, selling out to God with all I've got for all of eternity. Celebrating him with all we have. All right. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Praise God for that. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. And uh, this is that sorrow that is according to the world. Okay. In other words, it's really steeped in self. It has a lot to do with you. It really sees things the way the world would see things. Please hear me on this. Tears does not equal godly grief. Everybody hearing that? You can have tears and have a worldly grief. Okay? Tears means, I don't like this. This hurts. But the view that comes along with it determines whether it's worldly or godly. What are we actually crying about? That's what matters. And that's a huge difference, man. And I'm telling you, we do a lot of counseling around here. We care a ton. We care to come alongside. And, and uh, pretty much all of us in our offices have boxes of Kleenex. And uh, for being able to sit down and hurt with people along the way. And there are some who are sitting there with this absolute godly sorrow, completely understanding what's gone wrong and what needs to change, and the tissues are flowing and the tears are flowing. And there's some who just wish they weren't in that situation, and the tears are flowing and the tissue is flowing. And man, our job is to make sure we are about being a godly griever, not a worldly griever. And all of God's people said, right, worldly grief, it leads or produces death. In other words, if I never do come to a spot where I understand I have a need for a savior, if I'm never going to set self down, if it's always about me and my greatness, there's never a point where I've come to a getting it right with Jesus Christ. Man, just so you know, in the end, well, that is eternal separation from God. That is standing before the judgment throne without any protection and your lack of perfection will cost dearly. He's like, don't go there, man. It doesn't go the right way. And it doesn't lead to the right things ultimately. And be careful. Worldly grief, it really doesn't pay off ever. Right? And uh, 
worldly grief, worldly sorrow. I just wrote these words down. Here's four phrases or four words about worldly sorrow that we need to grasp, all right? Number one, uh, worldly sorrow. It is self-centered. Worldly sorrow, it is self-centered. It sees how the situation affects themselves. all right? And so when we're wrestling with our sin, when we're wrestling with heartache, when we're wrestling with being busted for being outright wrong somewhere, and, when, and the tears start to flow, and we're like, I can't believe it, and we're like, this just hurts so bad. That's a, getting dangerous. This, this hurts so bad. I really, I, do you understand how hard this is for me? Now we're really getting bad, Okay. The struggle has all of a sudden become, do you feel the weight of what I have to carry in the midst of my sin? And the self-centeredness, the tears rolling because I didn't want to have to be busted, quite frankly, almost always directly related to the consequence was bigger than I ever imagined. That's worldly sorrow. I'm really sad I did this to myself. Those are tough moments, man. And the self-centeredness, it sees how it affects me. That's worldly sorrow. The second one, complaining. Complaining. You're pretty certain you're in the midst of worldly sorrow when in the midst of your own sin, you start whining about the circumstance. Pretty certain, okay? I can't believe that they were... Why would they... This, you're so unfair when... I, I just... Right? And the complaining just starts rolling out. We become experts when we do not want to give up our sin position, right? The next thing we have to do is tear everybody else down around us or we got problems, right? And, and so really we start to whine about it. The process is unfair, right? The people are unfair. The rules are unfair. The, the expectation was incorrect. The, right, right? Everything starts to become why me? Right? The self-centeredness leads to complaining pretty directly. And, and then the third one, defensiveness. Or if you want to put it another way, blame shift. Right? And uh, we've seen this from the, I mean, Adam was challenged. You're like, it wasn't me, it was the woman. Right? She, she brought the apple, right? It was her. I didn't, I didn't do that. I, I, you're blaming the wrong guy, man. Get it over here. Do you see what they did wrong? And look, quite often, blame shifting is actually fairly accurate. Like at some level, they probably did do something wrong too. She did bring the apple, right? There was wrong that was done. In the moment there's interaction, it's like, well, 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 stop looking at me. Start looking at them. And the reality is they probably have stuff that needs to be dealt with too. But just so you know, when they're being dealt with and they're like, hey, what about? They're like, hey, look at him. And they're pointing right back at you. Right? That's how blame shift goes is all we do is point around a circle at everybody and everybody's just pointed to. So can we all just get this fair? We're all sinners. Everybody just say, we're all sinners. Okay, so let's stop pointing the finger around and trying to prove that, okay? We've got that clear. So instead of one giant circle, well, I point to the guy, and then they point around and all the way around, and then it gets back to pointing at me too. And, and we're all sinners. Blame shifting is like, I just don't want to own mine. So it's time to own. And uh, worldly sorrow is like, I ain't owning it, man. And uh, have you ever heard this phrase? Uh, they made me do that, right? They made me. And, and all of a sudden, the phrasing there is starting to become like, you didn't have a choice. Like, you know, your little brother and sister are fighting. And your brother punches your sister, and he's like, well, she made me. Really? She, like, grabbed your hand and, like, 
punched herself in the face with your fist. Is that what happened? Well, you know, I mean, she did things that made me really mad and I lost control and then I, right, and so let's talk about your losing control, right? And uh, all too often we want to find where the other party is at blame so we can deal with ours less. Worldly sorrow will be super interested in figuring out where the others are all at fault. That's a huge problem, okay? Self-centeredness, complaining, defensiveness, and then finally, accusation. This is outright attack against the others. It's not just blame shifting. It's not just pointing a finger at. It's beginning to attack, and quite frankly, at this point, it doesn't even matter if it's true. This is all about muddy the water. I don't want you to be able to reason through properly what's going on, so I'm going to go hard at you. There's going to be meanness. There's going to be directness. There's going to be forcefulness. And uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like if you've ever had to talk with someone about something going wrong and you're like, man, am I going to pay for bringing this one up, right? And a worldly sorrow, it gets very attacking, very vicious. And uh, the point is to make you suffer for having brought this to their attention, right? And uh, so question, do you have worldly sorrow rolling in your life? Are you in a spot where you're, Clearly more worried about how it's affecting you than how it's affecting those around you or how it's most importantly affecting your God. Are you whining and complaining about the process or the rules or the unfairness? Are you defensive and blame shifting and pointing to somebody else? Are you accusing and attacking? Or are you letting God speak? Be careful. Sin is a horrible, evil thing, and it resides in each one of us, and it screams out, you matter so much. Keep you just like you are. Get at everybody else. And uh, everybody say, that's a terrible plan. (laughs) And that's worldly sorrow, okay? All right. Godly sorrow. He goes on here, and he gives some awesome statements about Uh, godly grief and he says for see what and now he starts to list seven things that are true about godly grief see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you the first one is earnestness a hunger in your soul for what is right see when you have a godly sorrow you long for it god's way you have a hunger in your soul for what's right that's the first thing that godly grief has is earnestness a hunger for right. And then he says after that, not just the earnestness, but he says, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Now be careful. This doesn't mean to vindicate me as innocent. It doesn't mean, everybody say it doesn't mean that. No, it means in the middle of talking through the problem, I'm going to recognize what I have to get set down. I'm going to recognize my own sin and I'm going to get that clean. I cannot wait to see God do a huge work in my life. You hear us pray often right before we start the sermons here, Holy Spirit, change us. Meet us here as we go through your word, and may we go out differently because we met you here. That's what we're talking about. Man, this cleaning of ourselves eagerly before our God. Lord, what needs to go? And uh, godly sorrow 
It has this earnestness, this hunger. It has this eagerness for getting the sin out of self and cannot wait to see it clean. He says, what indignation, indignation. This is like super upset in your mind, okay? It actually has mind built into the word. Like as you think about it, you're horrified by it. You're horrified by the sin. You can't believe it. You're starting to grasp it from God's view and it's literally taking your breath away. It's beginning to form almost a, a standing against it. You're like, I can't even believe I thought that way. An indignation over self and the choice of sin that you've gone after. And he says, what indignation and then what fear. Uh, man, when we grasp God as he stands, we'll start to understand the word fear a lot better. Okay. Like I'm just telling you all too often, we see a very small God or a very distant God. And we see a God who is love, which is very true. God is love. And he loves us with all he's got. But I'm telling you this, and God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. God stands for truth. He stands for what is right. Do you know that God? Are you banking on a God who is all just love? Man, be careful. There is no need for Christ to come to a cross if God doesn't care about what is right and wrong. Righteousness matters to our king. So much so that he said, I will come on your behalf. I love you and I will die for you. How important is it to him that righteousness gets managed? He brought his own life to bear. Man, hear me. Your God loves you with all he's got, yes. And your God is passionate about righteousness. Do you know that God? And he's like, I'm just telling you, when you start to get a godly view towards this sin, all of a sudden, you will have this welling up of a deep respect for your God, a fear even of how your God has the right to do whatever he could in your life and whatever he would to end that sin. And yet he loves you enough to have died for you and offered forgiveness. Man, the humility that brings... That I am not standing before my God because of my greatness, but because of his. And all of God's people said, man, may we grasp the depths of the righteousness and holiness of God. And as we begin to grasp that, I'm just telling you, your own sin will well up a fear in you as you go, God, please don't let me have to stand on my own works. Lord, may I stand on yours. Fear as we healthily understand who God is. He said this, godly grief, um, and it produces earnestness, and there's an eagerness to clear yourself. There's an indignation. There's a fear. And then he says, what longing, what longing. This is a deep desire and passion in your soul. What longing. And uh, starts to align with that word earnestness in the beginning. It's getting this idea of hunger, of passion going on. And uh, what longing in the midst, what zeal. And uh, this is fiery for what is right, right? Fiery for what is right. And, and you can have zeal for a very wrong thing. But, but when you have zeal, biblical zeal, you are going after what is right, what is true, what is God-honoring. You are passionate, not about getting yourself vindicated, but passionate about getting your God vindicated. You are passionate about him being shown off. And is there something in your life that needs to go? 
where you know you've been wrestling with the wrong things and it's time to set them down? Is there some sin of thought or of word or of action or of desire that keeps coming back into your life and it's eating you up? And it's time to stop saying, well, yeah, but you don't understand what, what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't, you don't get, this isn't even fair. And, I, and it's time to put it on the ground and say, God, may you take over. True humility that recognizes that we're all broken sinners in need of a Savior. And uh, in the midst of saying, yeah, we're all broken sinners, don't love the we are all part of that most. You know what I'm saying? They're like, we're all sinners. So I guess I don't have to deal with mine. No, eh, wrong answer. We are all sinners, so we each need to deal with our sin before God. True humility. I will get this right before my king. And, uh, zeal. And then the last one is punishment. Godly sorrow is actually excited about the cost. Did you know that? That godly sorrow is excited about the punishment. In fact, just so you know, the original language word here, it says, out of justice or out of righteousness it is born. That's what this word means, punishment. It comes from justice. It comes from righteousness. We long to see God do the right things. And, and look, if there's some sin I've caused and some cost of it that I need to pay a price for, well, then so be it. I am ready to lay this on the line. And whatever the consequence, I'll walk through it. May God get all the glory. That is godly sorrow. Whatever I have to walk through, may this be done. Godly sorrow. Okay? There's a punishment in the midst that we celebrate as we see God purifying our soul. It says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And I love this statement. Innocent in the matter. Like, what are we talking about here? We're going to have to read the next... A uh, line or two, just a second to see what's going on. But he's like, just so we're clear, the challenge letter that I wrote to you, which we talked about over the last couple of weeks, it's not 1 Corinthians and it's not 2 Corinthians. There's some third letter that was written that was pretty firm. And in the midst of it, he was challenging someone who was in sin. And there was encouragement for someone else who was sinned against. But the biggest challenge was against the church body to say, dude, stop being good with that. That's what was going on, a hard press in. And he's like, yeah, well, it may not have been you that was the primary source of the sin. Your passion was to see this thing cleaned up at the highest levels and you responded as such. And uh, to get yourself right before your God. It says, so although I wrote to you, it was not, everybody say not, not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. He's not like, I wrote this letter because of Bill. Okay, that's not what it was. I'm not going after this one guy, right? And uh, Nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. I'm sad for them and I had some encouragement for them, but that's not really why I did it. Everybody say not. So not for the guy who did the wrong, not for the guy who was wronged, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. My longing was that you as a church start to grasp what's right and wrong and you take that stand. You take that stand with me as an apostle. You take that stand with your God and you long to see God do a work. That you as a church begin to take the tough stand against sin. Don't be good with it, man. 
stand against and long to see a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow. He says, therefore, we are comforted. He's like, I love that God was able to do a work in you. And Paul sort of takes a seat. Can you feel the pressure come off? Therefore, we are comforted. And man, I'm just telling you, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. As we navigate each day, you and I, sinners in need of a savior, as we go through our selfish little tirades and our moments of upsetness, please hear me, each day we have a choice to make about taking it in a godly path or a worldly path. Am I going to try to defend my position in sin and not see any change and not admit I'm in need and not want to see any healing? Am I going to attack the other people around me so that maybe I can vindicate a little bit? Or am I going to hear what God has to say? Am I going to allow this sin to go that God might get all the glory? All right. So let's go to a biblical example on this. Um, Saul, he was king of Israel. For those who know the story, Saul was chosen to be king. He was actually a bit of a moron, let's be real. Saul didn't have his act together at all. He didn't know what he was doing. And in fact, with you go through and you talk about the hearts that Saul had no heart. And David had a whole heart and Solomon had a half heart. And, and so what does this mean? And well, Saul was wrestling with himself and standing before human beings and he longed to see them like him and think much of him. His kingship was all about him and trying to turn it towards God often so he doesn't get himself in trouble. There was a moment where he was asked to go against the nation, the Amalekites, and he's, they, God said, do this, wipe them out. His punishment is due them, and you're going to be the hand of it for me. Wipe them out. I want nothing left. No animals, nothing. So they went in. They went after the Amalekites. 1 Samuel chapter 15. They went after the Amalekites. They took them out. And then he was like, wow, these are like some really good sheep. These are really in good shape. We should keep these for sacrifice. And so he took the animals home with him. And then in that moment, Samuel, who was actually kind of the priest at that time for the nation, is told to approach. By God, he approaches, and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? Kind of my language there, but hey, man, what's going on? And, uh, and he's like, we won. It went really well. And he's like, did you do everything God said? Yeah. Why do I hear sheep? That's real, man. He actually says, why do I hear bleating in the background? That he actually said those words. Can you imagine that moment where Saul's like, well, right? And, and yeah, I just, um, so I thought that a good move would be to take these animals and then use them to sacrifice to our God. I mean, he's all about sacrifice. Do you hear what he just did? He was asked to do something. And so he said, no, I'll do what I want to do, but I'm going to make it look like I'm following you, right? And so I'm going to take these animals that you told me to get rid of, and I'm going to actually sacrifice them to you, God. And Samuel's quote was, God desires obedience over sacrifice. Dude, let those words settle. How often are we like, God, you don't understand. I'm going to do what you want done. See, you want this to happen, and I'm going to make that happen. But, but God said very clearly, don't be about these elements, and you're about them anyway. And uh, Saul, he was like, yeah, I don't listen. That's kind of my nickname. I won't listen. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to try to justify it along the way. So it gets worse. 
He says, why don't you come with me now and bless me in front of the people? We just won a great war. Let's talk about it. And Samuel's like, dude, I'm not going with you. The word dude is not in there, but you can try to look it up if you want. He's like, dude, I'm not going with you. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be seen next to you while you stand against God. I'm against that. As he turns to walk away, Samuel or Saul reaches out, grabs his robe. His robe starts to tear. He's pulling on him that strongly. Picture this now. The guy is so venomous about getting his sin clean that he's like, come be with me in front of people and make it look like it's fine. And Samuel says, I'm not. He says, fine. Then at least send the elders to come be with me in front and pray over me and honor me. So that I can look good in front of the people. Saul's whole thing was worldly view of sorrow. I've been busted. At least help me clean it up on aisle seven. Right? And then there's David, another king. Who basically was making some horrible decisions. And got caught into an affair and all the problems that went along with that. And, and, and we know the whole story of and in the midst of being challenged. And uh, he's got a friend that comes to him and he's like, there's this guy. And tells a story. And David's like, venomous. Why, why would that guy do that? And he's like, dude, that's you. And, and David's horrified by his own sin. What he does not say. Help me make it look good in front of the people. What he says. I need to go away and be with my God. He went away. He repented. He fasted. He prayed. He was cut to the core and he declared out, I have sinned against my God. Do you hear a difference? Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Man, are you wrestling with the worldly sorrow that's eating you up, where you're more interested in defending yourself and making you look good in front of the people. Time to set it down, okay? And uh, have you ever noticed how you just get sort of used to living a certain way? And you just sort of live that way. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how you can take in a smell for a while and then you just get used to it? Did that happen to you this morning? Do you know what I'm talking about? On the way in, there was this smell from Peoria rolling in. And if you didn't notice it, dude, you've lived here too long. <laughs> like, if you didn't notice it, I'm telling you, there's, just, there's a strong odor about it. And you get used to living with it. And there's a point where you go out and stand in the hallway. You could smell it even in our church now because we opened the doors to welcome you in. And in came the smell too, right? And it's like hanging with us. And now you start to talk out there in the hallway. And after a while, you're like, I don't smell anything. And man, be careful. That's not you with worldly sorrow. And make sure that we don't get to a point where we just get so used to living life that way that that's just life. Don't be good with it. Godly sorrow. Turn it to your God with all you've got. Is there a sin you need to let go of? Now. Hand it over to your king. Okay? Number two. Seek. Seek to encourage and speak highly of others ultimately for God's glory. Seek to encourage and speak highly of others, ultimately for God's glory. And uh, he says, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 
He's like, I'm just telling you this. We were comforted that you as a church responded, but we were super comforted that you did a work in the life of Titus. Titus came with this message, this written letter that had challenge to be given. And the, and the letter was like, you as a church are wrong, and, and there's a sin that's wrong, and this needs to be dealt with. It was a fairly firm letter. We don't know what it said exactly, but Paul's been pretty clear several times over in this that it was a hard letter, right? And can you imagine? And then he gets done writing it, and he's like, there you go, Titus. Take that. You take that to them. And Titus is like, I don't like my job. Like, I don't want to do this, really, you know? And, and so as he gets there... He ends up saying, this is amazing, the response of them. Titus said he was refreshed by the church as they heard where they were wrong and turned and went the right direction. It says, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Titus is like, dude, I don't want to do this. I don't want to take this letter. And Paul's like, don't worry, man. This church loves God with all they've got. They're going to respond well. Just hang in there, bro. Just bring the letter. Bring a little bit of tough with it. Care for them. They're going to turn. Trust me, it'll go okay. And then Paul sends him out the door, and he's like, I hope that goes okay. Right? And uh, he loves hearing back that it went well. He says, for whatever boast I made about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Paul's like, I love to take a stand for Jesus Christ, and I love to take a stand for a church that will take a stand for Jesus Christ. I love to stand by you. I love to make much of what God's doing in your life. Amen. We're all sinners saved by grace. Amen. And we all need a king. Amen. His name is Jesus Christ. He has died and he has risen, and we have hope in him. As we as a church start resonating with the view of God towards sin, and repenting of what needs to go and heading for what is right, watch God work. Paul's like, I love being partnered with you guys, and I love seeing what's taking place. He says, and his affection for you, Titus, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. As they brought Titus in, they were like, Man, we can't wait to hear what God has to say, and whatever he has to say, we will bend to. May God get all the glory. Man, is that your approach to your daily walk? God, reveal to me what needs to go. May you get all the glory. He says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. God's doing a work in him. Man, may we be a church on fire for Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this, if you are willing to be sharing that tougher word, which is awesome, Titus brought that tough word, Paul shared it in, I'm just telling you this, um, man, our job, America would love to say, just let everybody live their life. That's the world's view. Right? Everybody say the world's view. Just let everybody live their life. But God's view. No, if you see a brother or sister in sin, come to them. Right? Matthew chapter 18, share with them. Galatians 6.1, gently, carefully, respectfully, you love them and you don't want to fall into sin yourself, but you care enough to share. Be willing to bring the harder word. Be willing to hear the harder word. May God make a change in my life. That's what he's challenging here. 
A church on fire is a church that cares so much about the righteousness of God that we will defend that first and foremost. Are you in? Are you willing to say, God, I'm not going to get comfortable with my own sin and I'm not going to get comfortable with a worldly expression of my freedom? I'm in. I am ready to see you glorified. Man, this world, it keeps trying to mirror and mimic everything that God does, but with way worse outcome, right? Keeps drawing in and we keep tasting of the things of this world and they do not satisfy. Worldly sorrow produces death. Self-centeredness, me attraction, complaining, whining, defending, and attacking. Everybody say that's a terrible plan. I agree with you. So let's set that down and let's make it all about our godly sorrow. In alignment with the king, him making a change, God getting the glory.